So, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. This will be his last visit to Jerusalem. He's heading towards Jericho. If you've been in, in the Middle East, Jericho is to the, to the east of Jerusalem, and it's, it's down low. So when you go through Jericho and you want to go to Jerusalem, you've got to wind your way up to that city. He's not there yet, but we'll pick it up at this part of his journey. And we'll read, we have six parables here, one, two, three, four, five, six, probably good that I counted them. And so we're going to start on the first one right now. We'll read one parable at a time, talk about it for a little bit. Here's where it starts. Luke 18, verse 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared not God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man. Can you imagine a guy saying that? (laughs) That's just so weird. (laughs) The guy would say that. Anyway, that's what the story says. So, uh, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down with her continual coming. And the Lord God and the Lord said, "Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on the earth?" I'm going to talk a lot about prayer tonight. I think somehow when these chapters were laid out for the five or six of us, five of us that are teaching, I think God just says, make sure Scudstead gets chapter 18, because he's probably the worst prayer at Edgewater. And so I, I, I get better when I think about it, study it. I'm, I'm growing in my prayer life. Long, long, long ways to go. But how many of you think prayer is important? Raise your hand. Hopefully everyone's thinking, yeah. How many of you are 100% confident, comfortable in your prayer life? I mean, how did you say 100%? I'm just running 100%. Not very many. Not very many. I, I'm certainly not there. I'm not 100% satisfied with my prayer life. I don't think most people are. I think deep down, if we're really, really honest with ourselves, and it's not always pleasant to do that, we're not really sure how and even if sometimes prayer works. Because we pray for something and it doesn't happen. <laughs> right? Or we don't pray for something and it does happen. Or we pray for something and it happens, but then we think, what if I wouldn't have prayed? Would it have happened anyway? We've all been there. If you've thought it through, that's the nature of prayer. And I think this parable that we just read, these eight verses, um, give us a little bit of a foundation, not the whole foundation, but a piece of the foundation for a better prayer life. Um, This parable is a parable of contrast. In other words, uh, it's, it's saying, don't, don't be like this. That, that's kind of how it's teaching us. Don't be like this unrighteous judge. Or, who's, or God's, I should say, God's not like the unrighteous judge. Let's just, let's just run through it this way. Our God, it's a parable of contrast. So in contrast, we find its deepest meaning. Number one, our God is not like, our God is so not like that uncaring judge. Again, we learn through contrast. Unlike the judge, our God is a father to us. He's a father to us. I'm not saying he's like a father. 
because some of you have had lousy fathers. So if I say he's like a father, your brain goes, oh. If he's like my father, that's less good. And it would be less good. I'm saying he is a father to you. He's the most amazing father you could ever imagine. Whatever you could concoct in your head that a good father would be, he's better than that in every single way. He is not just like a father to us, he is a father to us, the best you could have. Unlike the judge, the unrighteous judge, our God loves us completely, scandalously, beyond what we could imagine. He absolutely loves us. Unlike the judge, our God gave us his best. For God so loved the world that what? He gave his only, his only son, his only begotten son. Unlike the judge, our God can't take his eyes off of us. He can't take his eyes off of you. He absolutely cannot, will not, couldn't fathom for a moment taking his eyes off you. He loves you just the way you are. He's not, as Matt says so well, he's not in love with a future version of you. He's in love with you just the way you are. Good day, bad day, wherever you're at in your life, whatever season of life you're in. And our God wants to, I want you to hear this, he really wants to act on your behalf. He's not like this judge. He's the opposite. Whatever the judge is, God is the opposite. That's how you learn through this parable. He wants to act on your behalf. He wants to hear your prayers. God longs to hear our prayers. Why we don't pray more, I don't know. Because our God is good. It's like the song, he's a good, good, what? Good, good father. That's who he is. And secondly, we're not like the widow. Praise God. Not that I have nothing against widows, but I'm saying she had it tough. Unlike the widow, we're his bride. We're his bride. Forever his bride. I know that sounds kind of weird if you're a guy. I'm like, what's that? But we're his bride. We're his beloved. Betrothed to him. The widow was alone, right? She had nobody. And in that culture, that it would be extra, extra hard to be a widow. It's hard to be a widow at any time. I understand that to some degree. But in this culture, it's much harder. You have nothing. And culture's pushing against you. You have no advocate. But unlike the widow, we have, we have two advocates. To the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, John chapter 1, verse 2, says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Never leaves us or forsakes us. She had nobody, we have, but we have somebody else. Who else do we have? Who else knows? We have the Holy Spirit, Right? Romans 8, 26, likewise, the spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We have two advocates, she had none. It's a parable of contrast. But perhaps the most haunting words in this parable are found in the last verse that I read, verse eight. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? That to me is a haunting, haunting verse. Will he find faith on the earth? Prayer requires faith. Always will. Always has. Prayer requires faith. So that's why faith, I think, closes off this little parable, importance of faith in this parable about prayer. And it's a faith that's described in Hebrews 11.6. So many of you know that verse. 
Hebrews 11.6, that faith is described in there. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God, how do we draw near to God? Multiple ways, but probably the most significant is in prayer. But whoever would, uh, who would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's prayer again. I think this is touching on prayer if it's not completely about prayer. This guy I like, his name is Paul Miller. He wrote an excellent book on prayer. I think it's called The Praying Life. If you want to get a good book on prayer, I think that's a good, a good book. Paul Miller, The Praying Life. And this is a quote from him. He says, if you're not praying, then you're actually confident that time, money, and talent are all you need in life. You'll always be a little too tired, a little too busy. But if like Jesus... But if, like Jesus, you realize you can't do life on your own, then no matter how busy, no matter how tired you are, you will find time to pray. Just like a gas gauge tells you how much gas is in your tank, your prayer life is probably one of the best gauges for your faith life. We don't pray because we lack faith. So, I don't know what that, 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 when I think of stuff like this to share to you, believe me, it's pounding on me right now. It's pounding on me. I need to grow in faith. I think if you grow in faith, you grow in prayer. If you grow in prayer, you grow in faith. Let's keep going. The next section, verses 9 through 14. The Pharisee and the tax collector. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This is what he said. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and where am I at? Or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For anyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who, anyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So pious Jews, like this Pharisee, generally would fast twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays. Those are their big fast days. So my guess is, by this guy's attitude, he was fasting. It was a Monday or a Thursday. This guy's packing attitude. He's not, I don't think he's too thrilled about his fast. Fasting's not always so fun. So I think he's bringing a little bit of an attitude with him. Definition of attitude is a settled way of thinking or feeling about someone or something, typically one that is reflected in a person's behavior. And this Pharisee had a bad attitude. You ever had a bad attitude? Anybody ever had a bad attitude? A bad attitude? The problem is, the problem is he can't seem to look up because he can't get his eyes on this. (laughs) I don't know that he ever got his eyes up here. He was too busy looking around. He's looking around, he's getting ready to pray. And maybe he's in a sense starting to pray, but I think he's doing more of a pep talk, to be honest. He looks and he goes, 
That cat right there, that's an extortioner. I know that guy. I know about that guy. And that one over there, unjust. Unjust. And that one behind me, rumor has it. Rumor has it. Adultery. But the one that we really settled on, the one that really got his goat, was who? The tax collector. Working for the Roman government. Unjustly taxing, at least in the eyes of the people, unjustly overtaxing them and gaining great profit from it. And you say, well, you read that, and you go, well, that would never happen here, right? That, we, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't come to church with that kind of an attitude. We're so much better than that. Are we? Are we? Really? Do, do not we tend, at least way down deep, don't we tend to quietly glorify the things that we do and that we believe? Don't we tend to a little bit? Let's do it around a church setting. So you drive into, your, into the church, right? Thinking, I'm not like those folks who park up near the building. <laughs> I park in the lower parking lot at the farthest corner and I don't take the golf cart, I walk. Not like those sinners. <laughs> or you're thinking this, it's the end of worship, and you're thinking to yourself, I sang every one of those songs even though my ears were ringing, it was so loud. <laughs> Have you ever thought that? <laughs> or, or this one, you're thinking this, in church, I take notes when Matt shares. And that guy behind me didn't even bring his Bible. I'm taking notes. Have you ever done that? Hallelujah. Or we notice things others don't do. We notice, we quietly notice things others don't do. As you settle in your seat, right, Sunday, you notice that guy who cut in front of you in the coffee line. And he's right in front of you. He's seated right in front of you. So when the meet and greet time comes, you know, you got to get up and I mean, he's right there. You greet the guy to his left and you greet to the guy to the right. Just give him the, you cut in front of me, nod, and that's it. <laughs> Have you ever done that? Or thought about doing it? Or Sunday service. During the teaching, you look around, right? During the teaching, you look around, you start looking at people, and you go to yourself, you say to yourself, I never saw them on a Wednesday night. Never saw them on a Wednesday night. Never saw any of those people on a Wednesday night. Because I'm good. I'm righteous. I'm something you're not. Or as the offering bag goes down your row, you note, notice that the guy next to you drops in a five, five cash. And you, you my friend, are dropping in the check with the tithe. The full tithe, not just the net, the gross. You're tithing on the gross. <laughs> you are a superstar. Five bucks. Probably had a boat behind his car when he drove in. <laughs> we do that. You can look at this guy and go, oh man, I would never do that. We might not be so overt, but we do the same thing. It's in us, it's in all of us, just like him. 
So most of us need a better attitude, even at church, I think. Church is a place we celebrate God's mercy to us. Church is a place where we celebrate God's mercy. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And the tax collector did that so well. He did that so well. Lord, help us. Even in the little things. Even in the little things. Little things matter. Don't despise the day of small things. Those little attitudes add up. They shape us. Let's, 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 look, let's look at the third parable. In the ESV, it says, let the children come to me. Now, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. These were not necessarily children. Most of the texts and commentators seem to say these were babies. These were infants. These were infants. So you may have thought of them as children. That's fine if you do. But really, I think they're younger than that. They're really little, little kiddos. And in this culture, infants were not the rock stars they are today. <laughs> They're another mouth to feed. They were another, they were somebody who couldn't work. They were a drag on the family. They were in some ways socially marginalized, the infants. And so I have three things I want to touch on here just out of this little vignette. Number one is who were bringing the infants, number one. The, the Greek pronoun for the word they, it says they, is masculine. So what do you think that means? That means dads were bringing the kids. Granddads, dads were bringing these babies. So the primary role of a Christian father, really, in our age, should be to bring their babies to Jesus. That's a primary role for a, for a parent, for a dad, focusing on dads for a second. Job, remember, he had seven sons and three daughters. 10 kids. And it says in Job chapter one, they would get together from time to time, these kids, and they'd have a big party. And afterwards, the next day, Job would sacrifice for every one of those kids, lest there was something they did or said in that party situation that would be sinful. That's how he started his day, was sacrificing for his kids. And it's a beautiful thing. It's what a godly parent does. Not just a dad, but a mom, too. They get up early and they offer prayers for their children and grandchildren. It's never, they're never too young. A kiddo is never too young to take to Jesus if it's your child. And they're never too old to take to Jesus. They're never too old. My kids are all married, having their own kids. But a dutiful thing for me to do as a dad would be to continue to pray for Megan, Jenny, and Kelly. They're always going to be my kids. And so my wife's done this so well. I've done it so poorly. She's more than made up, I pray, for my bad prayer uh, life when it comes to praying for my kids. For somehow, poorly, so I relegated that to my wife. Don't know why. Stupid. That's why. Stupid. Something else probably worse than that. But my kids have turned out so well, I think it's because of my wife's faithful praying. But I was really on the hook that whole time, and she graciously saved me, as she does all the time. 
So bring your kids to the Lord. Even after they're out of the house and they're married with their own children, they're still your kids. Keep bringing them to the Lord. Number two, you'll also bring your kids to Jesus by your actions, not just by your prayers. Remember, they're bringing their kids, their infants to the Lord. You're gonna bring your kids to the Lord by your actions, probably as much or more than your words. My dad died 10 years ago today. And rumor has it around here that I'm a gentle guy. (laughs) So (laughs) I don't know that I am. That's very kind what Matt did for me on Sunday. Uh, It's completely unexpected. But there's a song that I used to sing, but I can't sing as much anymore because I can't. I can't sing that well. <laughs> That's exactly why. It's called Leader of the Band. Dan Fogelberg, I was a real fan of his years and years and years ago. He wrote the song Leader of the Band. The second verse says something like this. A quiet man, he's describing his dad. A quiet man of music denied a simpler fate. He tried to be a soldier once, but his music wouldn't wait. He earned his love through discipline. A thundering velvet hand, his gentle means... His gentle means of sculpting souls took me years to understand. And then the chorus, if you can flip that up there, the leader of the band is tired, and his eyes are growing old, but his blood runs through my instrument and his song is in my soul. My life has been a poor attempt to imitate the man. <clears throat> I'm just a living legacy to the leader of the band. That is my life. If you see me as gentle, I had a gentle dad. He played a big role in my life. And you have a gentle father. If you didn't have a gentle dad, we still have a gentle father in heaven if that wasn't your experience. But what you see really is what he was. It's not me so much. And I think he had a gentle dad. His dad came over from Norway, early 1900s, big man. And from what I understand, I never met him. He died before I ever got back to Wisconsin. But uh, he was a really good man and a gentle man. And my dad was a gentle man. And hopefully I am a gentle man too. And I'm hoping my son, and I believe he is, will be a gentle man too, Kelly. And my girls, but they won't be gentle men, they'll be gentle women. All right, here we go. Number three. (laughs) Number three from this little text. If you're a baby Christian here tonight, if you're that infant Christian tonight, if you're that babe tonight, and maybe you had this sweet, deep relationship with Jesus years ago, and maybe you're just coming back, and really you're a baby in the faith, I'm just going to tell you, he's waiting to embrace you. He did not shoo away those babes. He, he loved whatever he did. He embraced them. He loved them. He blessed them, the Bible says. And if you're that babe tonight, he wants to do that for you. He really, really, really does. I just want you to remember that. Let's keep reading. Verse 18, the rich ruler. Some texts might say the rich young ruler. This is an interesting guy. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? 
No man is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear fault with false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, and these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left his house or wife. Don't even think about leaving your wife for, all right. This doesn't mean leave like leave, leave. This means leave like I'm not spending a lot of time with her. Right, okay, here you go. Left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. I think this rich young ruler had a sincere heart. I think he was a sincere guy. I really do. I think he was a good guy. Really a good guy. Not a pretend good guy. Not like a Pharisee trying to trick him. I think this guy was a sincere, honestly good person. And in some of the other texts, the Gospels, where it talks about this story, it says Jesus loved him. Jesus loved this guy. I love that. And it wasn't that he possessed, it wasn't that he possessed riches that was the problem, but that riches possessed him. It wasn't that he possessed riches but that riches possessed him. That was really the problem. So if you're here tonight and riches are a problem, give them to me and I'll take care of them. No problem. (laughs) I'm okay with it. I'll sacrifice whatever it takes. So if that's a problem, you can just hand them to me. I'll deal with them. Just kidding you. But the rich young ruler, the rich ruler, he was actually confused. And I want you to look carefully at a couple words. It's in the, um, in verse 14, And the ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Do implies work. Do implies work. Inherit implies a gift, right? I don't think you work for your inheritance. You get an inheritance because of who you are. There's, there's, to me, those things conflict. And I think every religion but Christianity has that same conflict. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? They all have their rules, and they all, and, and there's all kinds of religions, gods, goddesses, all, whoever, they all have their rules. And if you keep the rules, right? If you keep the rules, whatever they are, do this, do it, don't do that, maybe you'll make it. Maybe you'll make it. That's what happens when you mix works and gifts. They don't, they don't mix oil and water. They just don't. They can't. 
So I want you to remember three things that I think about, and I've shared this with really a lot of people because it just makes sense to me. When people come to me and maybe they say, well, I got questions. What, what about all these religions? What about all these religions? You guys grab Christianity, but what about this? And what about that? And what about them? And I said, well, I don't, know all, I don't know all of that, but this is the way I look at it. That's how many religions there are. There's two. There's one of them, and they're all the same. It's all the same package. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What's the rule? What do I have to do? What do I have to do? Well, what's the problem with that? Here's three problems with that, to me. How will you know when you've done enough? Honestly. How will you know when you've done enough? What if you're just one deed short for whoever the God is? What if you're just one work short? The bottom line is you'll never know until you die if you've done enough. That's one problem with that kind of, of that, of that flavor of religion. Number two, how will you know if you had to work to get your inheritance, their heaven, their whatever they want to call it, how do you know for one second that you're not going to have to continue to work to stay there? If you had to work to get there, how do you know you don't have to work to stay there? You don't know. That's not good. And third, and just as important, why would you want to spend eternity with a God whose love for you is based solely on you trying to please him, her, or them? (laughs) Why would you want that? Why would you want that? Would you want a marriage like that? Would you want a marriage that you had to work your way into your spouse's favor and you had to continue to work your way to keep that favor? No one would want a marriage like that. I don't know why anyone would want a religion like that. But to me, there's two religions. There's all, all of them are just like that. That's the, that's the whole package. You're just different rules for different gods going to a different place. You don't know if you make it. You're probably going to have to work to stay there, by the way, if that's how you got there. And you really want to hang out for eternity with a God that doesn't love you because he loves you. He loves you for how you perform for him. It's lousy. It's totally lousy. Christianity stands alone, completely separate from that philosophy. It's the other religion. Christianity, Jesus says it perfectly. Luke 18, 26 and 27. We just read it. Those who heard it said, who then, then who can be saved? But he, Jesus said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. What's possible with, impossible with man is possible with God. And we could talk about that camel thing. I don't think, and I don't think you think this, but just in case there's a, I don't think there was a camel gate thing. I mean, I just can't imagine this Jewish guy coming up with his camel loaded down and there's this little tiny gate next to a great big gate and he says to his buddy, let's just jam our camel through that guy. I mean, who's going to do that? It's not jamming a camel through a camel gate or a needle gate or whatever. It's impossible. It's impossible. That's what Jesus, that's why the disciples got it. Well, then who can be saved? I understand what you're saying. You're saying it's impossible because you can't. 
thread a camel through an actual needle. You just can't do it. So, that aside, where are we at up here? Here we go. There we go. The Bible, God, our God is completely honest. Unlike these other gods in the Bible and gods that surround us that you have not very much information on how it's all going to work out, our God is completely honest. This is what he says. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, what? And fall short of the glory of God. All sinners here, folks. We've all fallen short of God's glory. Romans 3.20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. See, in Christianity, it's absolutely impossible to work your way into the inheritance. What must I do to, be, to gain my... There's nothing you can do. Christianity starts with this fundamental fact. You'll never make it. Period. You'll never make it. No matter how nice you are, no matter what you have done or all the goods and what you haven't done of the bads, you'll never make it to heaven on your own merit. You can't do anything to inherit eternal life, according to the Bible. That's the absolute starting point. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting, everlasting life. All other gods and religions say, you need to come to me. And our God alone says, you'll never make it, so I'm coming to you. I love that. Celebrate in that. They all said, if you, if you work hard, maybe you'll make it. Our God says, no, never make it. So I'm coming to you to rescue you, rescue us. Let's look at the next section, verse 31. And taking the 12, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what he said. This is the third time, the third time that Jesus had told them the same thing. This was the third, and this would be the last time he would tell them the same thing in these three years they journeyed together. Some say third time's a charm, but not to these guys. They don't get it. They don't get it the first time, they don't get it the second time, and they don't get it the third time. And I'll only say this, just as a brief note. When we study God's word, it requires two things, in my opinion. Perspiration, study, and it takes human perspiration and I'd say divine revelation. That's, that's when you really start to understand what God's word means and, and perhaps more importantly, what it should mean to you. You need perspiration, you need to put the effort in but equally so, flip the coin over. Just you need, you need divine revelation. He had not opened their hearts to this truth. He didn't the first time. He didn't the second time. He didn't the third time. After he died, rose again, ascended into heaven, they would look back and go, oh, I get it. Oh, I get it now. 
he was giving divine revelation at that point, but they didn't get it. They just didn't get it. So you can read something three times. They were told three times. You can read something 30 times in the Bible. You can read something 300 times in the Bible. And you may not get it. It's just words on a page. It's just, yeah, I've, I know that. Yeah, I know that. I've, yeah, I know that. Because it's not accompanied with divine revelation. They're both important. You've got to put the effort in. Without us, he won't. But without him, we can't. It's really true. It's really, really true. The fruitfulness you want in your life is only going to be found through a partnership an ongoing partnership that you have with Jesus Christ. He never saves us to set us free from sin, yes, but from him, no. From sin, yes, but from him, no. He wants us to, he wants us to walk with him every second of this journey. John fifteen five says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, what? For without me, you can do nothing. Without God, you can do nothing. You can listen to sermons on Wednesday nights and do nothing. It takes him. So if you come with God, if you come partnered with Jesus tonight, and you're saying, okay, I'm, I'm listening and I'm trying to, okay, I'm, I'm doing what I can, take this in, but, but, but Father, but Lord, I, I need you to give me divine revelation of who you are and who I am. I don't even know who I am. You need to help me. That's when stuff happens. That's when stuff happens. That's when the good stuff happens. You're in a partnership with God. You're walking with him. You're abiding in him. And he just gives you that little reminder. But remember, we're together, but remember, don't forget, Mark, without me. I, but I got this one. I've been doing this for a while, Lord. I've been pastor almost 20 years. I got this one. Watch me run. Watch me talk. Watch me whatever I do. And it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not effectual unless I'm really, truly inviting God to partner with my efforts and give divine revelation to people I'm talking to and about myself. Let's, let's close off. Let's look at this last little section. Jesus heals a blind beggar. Verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him, and who were in front rebuked him telling him to be silent. But he cried out, all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people saw it, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So we end this chapter, not completely unlike the way we started the chapter. Two outcasts, a widow and a blind beggar, really. Totally social outcast. 
Both were completely stuck in their circumstances. Both were helped. But there's a big difference. She was helped in her story simply by persistence. It's an unjust judge she was talking to. And her persistence got her, brought her justice. This man was healed by faith. He's healed by faith. And that's my closing thought tonight. When you pray, pray with faith to a faithful God. When you pray, pray with faith to a faithful God. When you pray, pray with faith to a faithful God. And I believe, and maybe I'm oversimplifying it, I could be, he'll do one of two things. He'll answer your prayer. He'll answer your prayer if you pray with faith to a faithful God or, so important, he will give himself as the answer. He'll answer your prayer or he will give himself as the answer. So we ask the Lord for direction. Lord, I need direction. I'm the way. I'm the way. It's me. We ask God for peace. And he says, you'll find your peace in me. Prayer is not to get the goods. Although it's okay to ask for the goods. It's to enjoy the one who is good. Purpose of prayer. It's not just to get the goods, it's to enjoy the one who is good. So if he doesn't answer your prayer, I promise you a thousand times a thousand, he'll give you himself as the answer. And you just need to explore what that means. It's really important. He'll give you himself. And honestly, probably most of the time, maybe all the time, that's the one you want. That's the one you want. You want him. It's okay to pray for what you want. I'm gonna do that too. But ultimately, he's, he's the one we're looking for. So Jesus, tonight, I thank you for your word. I thank you for listening hearts and ears. And Lord, I pray that you would, that you would give us revelation, Lord, in our own hearts and souls, that your spirit would partner with your word and partner with our thoughts to create, Lord, a deeper level of sanctification, a deeper understanding and appreciation of who you are, Lord. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Teach me to pray, Lord, in a way that pleases you. You didn't shun the disciples when they asked you that, and we are not shunned tonight for asking you to teach us to pray, Lord. So grow us in our faith, Lord, as you see fit. Deepen us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.